singing tonight. Is it Caleb that was on the piano? Is it Caleb? Forrester. Forrester? Okay, well, I, uh, I apologize for getting up and grabbing the brother that uh, was kind of leading the group, but I, I said, brother, I want to have you guys, if you can do it, come to our 4th of July event coming up in Vail, North Carolina, every 4th of July. In fact, when I was here on the 5th of July, it was the day after we had had our 4th of July event, and I want to invite all of you to come this coming year. COVID will be out of the way. Can I hear an amen? Uh, we've done this for, we've done this actually for over a decade, but we moved it from Valdez, North Carolina, out into the community of Vail, and God has blessed it. We have about 2,000 people generally come to that event. It's under two big tents. This year, despite COVID and all the fear mongering and everything and the governor really not wanting us to do fireworks and all that kind of thing, but we kind of pushed the envelope a little bit to the edge of the table and went ahead and did it anyway when we got the law enforcement community of Catawba County and Burke County saying, look, you guys do what you need to do. We're going to leave you alone. So we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And some of you may not know this, but the Law Enforcement Association of North Carolina joined a lawsuit against Governor Cooper early on in uh, in the coronavirus situation. And uh, the actual lawsuit was won by two churches that felt like the governor had been very egregious in shutting down churches, but allowing abortion clinics and liquor stores and all that to stay open, declaring those things to be essential, but church not to be essential. And by the way, uh, I saw it on your sign yesterday, preacher, it was so great. Church is essential. And I agree with that. And so anyway, all of that to say this, uh, we did our 4th of July uh, festival this year. We had about 12, 1300 people there. That's great in the middle of coronavirus virus and people could socially distance by groups if they wanted to under the tent. But we had the Wilmington Celebration Choir that I played for you last night there in the Capitol. They came and just lit the tent up. We also had the AG family from over in Tennessee. And a year ago, we had Legacy Five. How many of you know who Legacy Five is? And boy, what a blessing they were and other groups as well. But I got to thinking after I handed the card to the brother, I got to thinking if Forrester's getting married, he may use this excuse and say, I've married a wife and I can't come. And I'm not sure whether that'll work or not. But anyway, you guys were a blessing. Can we let them know how much we appreciate them tonight? To find guys that uh, are men's men who love the Lord, but can sing together and harmonize beautifully, have a heart for America. That's rare all the way around. And so I enjoyed tonight so much the ministry. And if you guys, please get back in contact with me. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And uh, we'd love to have you guys there, man. The people would love you. And I think you'd love the environment. It's alive. It's electric. Uh, we have free barbecue, free hot dogs, free soft drinks. We have a professional fireworks display at the end of the evening. All of that stuff free. You say, uh, why are you laughing at me? But anyway, everybody's going, yeah, we're going to be there. But anyway, that's why it is. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, we'd love to have you come. Uh, we, we just do that as a ministry for our community. Uh, I want to give back to my community, the community I live in. And I love living in Western North Carolina, spent a lot of time in DC around the United States and literally around the world. But I love my state, love my, my end of the state in Western North Carolina. And so we just give back in the form of this 4th of July event called United We Stand, a celebration of faith and freedom. United We Stand, celebration of faith and freedom. And this year to show support for us, the mayor of Hickory, North Carolina showed up and he said, preacher, I love what you're doing. And he uh, also serves as the chief of police. Now that's kind of an odd mix. Normally you don't see that, but uh, we had a law enforcement presence that we hired to come and work some off-duty guys. We have our own security detail. Never know, preacher, what you're going to have to deal with. 
with in this day and time, but we wanted to be prepared. Well, everybody that comes to this, just great, great people had no problems, nothing close to it. Anytime we've done this, but you want to be prepared. Well, anyway, the, the police chief slash mayor sent out three Hickory city police cars out there just to post them in prominent places to let people know you don't mess with anything going on here, but also to send this message. We're behind everything going on here. Well, that's unusual, isn't it? I'm thankful I live in a section of the country where despite even the, the problems that we may have and struggle with here, we have law enforcement people in leadership that understand the 4th of July, America's birthday is a vitally important day. And we ought to commemorate that with every bit of gusto and energy, a celebration that we can give to it. And so I appreciate those guys so much being a part of that. And uh, again, mark that down on your calendar. July 4. Would you do that? July 4. And if you can come be a part of that in Vail, uh, we'd love to have you do that. Now, let me just follow up a little bit. If I can, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter number 22. By the way, the guys had no idea tonight that saying uh, what I was going to preach on where God had directed me. I had no idea who they were. I'd never heard of these young men before, but anyway, their song selection tonight could not have been more, uh, more appropriate and more directed by the Holy Spirit of God. You're going to understand why in just a minute. But I want to say this, ladies and gentlemen, what pastor showed you at the beginning of the service was a powerful video of Dr. Clarence Sexton, Temple Baptist Church over in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, the, the, the video is called just Donald's Bible. And if you uh, have seen it several times, then you understand all the significance of it. I watched that video months ago and was aware of the connection and the tie into the 45th president of the United States of America. Now, let me just add a little bit of an exclamation point to what you just watched. Pastor, I didn't know you were gonna do that tonight, and I didn't really plan to say this tonight, but I believe the Lord would have me share it. Back in February, before coronavirus really got into high gear here in the United States and around the world, we were in Washington, D.C. with our entire ministry team because every three months, as I shared with you yesterday, every three months we visit every single member of Congress, every single office, gets a visit from our Hope to the Hill staff. And we were in the midst of visiting all the offices. And uh, during that time, um, on, on one evening, we had a, we had a little bit of a, 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 an evening open after our last visit. So I said to all of our staff, I said, folks, let's meet, let's meet over at Trump International Hotel. Let's have dinner over there at, at the restaurant. And have any of you ever been there before? Anybody been to the Trump International Hotel? Okay, it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely amazing. They treat you like a king. I had not been there since February. Walked in there uh, just on Friday night of this past week. And the guy at the front door said, welcome home, Mr. Kistler. Glad you're back. I can't believe he remembered my name. That's exactly what he said to me. So they work hard at this to, to, to let people know they're welcome there. It's an amazing place to visit. So anyway, back in February, we had dinner over there. And uh, on our way there, my son, Nathan, who had gone ahead to try to get our table set up, uh, he called me and said, Dad, where are you? And I said, well, we had to stop by store, pick up something for mom. He said, well, you better get here and get here quick because the secret service is here. And I said, well, is it the uniform secret service? You know, the guys with the black pants, dark pants, you know, in the white shirts, or is it the suited guys? He said, it's the guys in suits. I said, well, they don't show up unless the president's going to show up. And that's the truth. So I said, something's going on at the hotel tonight. And Nathan said, well, dad, try to get here, you know, because they're beginning to shut down some of the entrances into the hotel. Well, by the time we got there, couldn't even have our car valet parked. Had to find a spot in the parking garage to park it a couple of blocks up. Had to walk into the hotel. When I got there, couldn't even go in the, the main entrance. Had to go in another entrance because indeed something was going on. Well, what we found out is this over in the Trump International B 
ballroom, which is a large room where they have events. The president was speaking at a fundraising event. And what we found out is after he speaks there, he's going to come over to the very restaurant where we were scheduled to have dinner that night. And he was going to have dinner as well. And preacher, he did. He ate three tables from us. I'm not joking. He literally did. And so we went upstairs to the restaurant, got our food ordered. And my wife and our son's wife, Amber uh, of the Neelands, Amber Neeland is who Nathan married. Uh, Amber and my wife, like two teenagers at a rock concert, said, we're going to go downstairs because the president's got to come in and go up the steps to the restaurant just like we did. I said, look, they'll probably bring him in another way. I don't think that's going to happen. My wife said, honey, no, I'm guaranteeing you the president's going to come in and he's going to go up the steps to the restaurant. So I'm going to be down there. And when he comes in, I'm going to say hello to him. And so I said, well, you guys go ahead and do that. And uh, I said, I'm going to stay up here and fellowship with the rest of our team. Well, anyway, the food came. So I just grabbed my phone and called downstairs to where my wife was standing. I said, honey, your food's here and you may want to come get it before it gets cold. She said, it can get cold. Because I'm going to see the president tonight. That's exactly, Miss Tammy, what she said. And I could hear Amber in the background. Dad, you better come on down. He's going to come in. Well, finally, uh, they persuaded me. I went down there and the Secret Service came in and they put in what's called the rope line where you can't get beyond that. And they made us stand behind that. And sure enough, in walked Mark Meadows, who is the president's chief of staff. How many of you know who Mark Meadows is? He came in. Following him came Jim Jordan. How many of you know who Congressman Jim Jordan? Wonderful Christian guy. I love, love uh, Jim Jordan. We had just visited in his office earlier in the day and uh, he saw us standing there and he walked right over to us and said, hey guys, uh, we meet again. And he looked at my wife and said, Betsy, right? And she said, that's correct. And then uh, she looked at me after he walked on, she said, he didn't ask your name, but he, re <laughs> he remembered mine. And that, that it, it happened just like that. But anyway, kind of funny. Well, anyway, in comes Kelly Loeffler, who is the senator from, uh, from Georgia. And then in walked the president of the United States. By the way, if you want to see the picture, I've got it on my phone. I'll show you uh, us standing there talking to the president or at least him as I took a picture because he was right up to us. And it was an amazing thing. And again, Amber and Betsy were yelling, you know, like teenagers at a rock concert. I mean, it was kind of embarrassing to be honest with you, preacher, but not really. But anyway, the president stood there and what was amazing is this. Had his handlers, you know, the Secret Service, had they not said, Mr. President, we need to get you up to your table. I think he'd have stood there and talked to us all night. He's an amazing person. Okay, now again, I'm not being political tonight, but I'm headed somewhere and I want you to understand what the pastor showed you is important, significant. All that's going on in our nation right now is strategic. God's got his hand on all of this and he's trying to do something in our country and what he's trying to do is spawn a revival in this country and all he's waiting for is us as God's people to get ourselves in the place where we can be the recipients of his blessing. So anyway, the president goes up, sits three tables from us, we had with us that evening a young man, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's actually the photo editor for the vice president of the United States. He's become a friend of ours and really become a friend to our son, Nathan. Well, anyway, that young man was sitting at the table with us and he had set up for us after dinner what's called an after hours tour of the West Wing of the White House. Now, I've been in the, what's called the personal residence section of the White House several times, but I'd never been in the West Wing. So as soon as we finished our meal, we walked from the Trump Hotel, which is just a short walk over to the White House and we went through security. And by the way, I'll just tell you this, the guys that do security there at the White House, they mean business. Okay. They just do. And I cracked a joke. They didn't laugh. I got the message, you know, that they're very, very, and they have to be deadly serious about their job. But anyway, we got in and we got this West Wing tour of the White House. The West Wing includes the Oval Office. 
It includes the situation room. And by the way, they will not allow you into the situation room because what goes on in there is top secret. But anyway, we walked through the length and breadth of the West Wing. We went to the Oval Office and preacher, I can tell you this, I saw it myself. That Bible that was depicted there is on the back table behind the president's chair there at his desk in the West Wing in the Oval Office. Can I hear an amen right there? This is not a made up story. This is the actual truth. Now here's the kicker and I want you to hear me out. About four weeks ago, the president's brother, Robert Trump, passed away. How many of you were aware of this? All right, his brother passed away. Some of you may know a little bit of what I'm about to share with you. Some of you may not. But anyway, Robert Trump, months before he got so ill uh, of, the, of the sickness that led to his death, he was surfing the internet and he found that very video, preacher, that you showed. And what arrested his attention was the title, Donald's Bible. And he watched it. Now, evidently, evidently, Marion Smith McLeod Trump, the president's mom, I, I don't know that she ever professed faith in Christ. The great likelihood is that she probably did not. She did not say much, evidently, to the boys as they were growing up about the Bible or about, you know, why she named Donald after that 15-year-old boy from the Hebrides revival. I, I just, I, I don't know that she ever trusted the Lord, don't know about her spiritual condition. All I'm saying is this, Robert Trump knew nothing about the Bible, but he learned about it in that video. He then made this step, which is an amazing thing to me, because it was Clarence Sexton that had done the video, he took it upon himself to find out who that man was that did the video. He's pastor of Temple Baptist Church, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Robert Trump, the president's brother, called the church and set up an appointment to talk to Clarence Sexton. Did you know this? And as a result of that interaction, Clarence Sexton led Robert Trump to the Lord. Can I hear an amen right there? Four Fridays ago when the media said nothing about it because the first family kept it very, very quiet. I can share this because Clarence Sexton has shared it as well publicly. But four Fridays ago, the funeral was held for the president's brother in the White House and the president Melania invited Clarence Sexton because of his interaction with Robert Trump, the president's brother and leading him to Christ. The president Melania invited Clarence Sexton to fly to DC to preach the funeral in the White House. Can I hear an amen right there? Don't you tell me God's not up to something because he is. Don't you tell me God's through with the United States of America because he's not. Don't you tell me Washington, D.C. is a God-forsaken city because it's anything but. Something's going on in this country right now. And what God's looking for is some people who'll get on board in a very serious way with what God wants to do. Now, having said all of that and kind of whetted your appetite, I trust a little bit more to understand where God's trying to take us, not just in our nation, but this week. I want you to look at Ezekiel chapter number 22. Now, by way of introduction, let me just ask a couple of questions right out of the chute and I'm gonna try to move quickly. Anybody in here a football fan like I am? Football fan, all right? All right, all right let me ask this. Anybody in here a... Miami Dolphins fan like I am. Anybody Miami? I didn't think so, okay? I, you know, I use, Miami Dolphin people have had to wear bags over their heads for decades, all right? Because they've been one of the worst teams in the entire NFL. However, in 1973 and 1974, that was not the case. In 1973-74, that season, the Miami Dolphins did something that has never been duplicated. Does anybody remember what that was? First undefeated and only undefeated season in NFL history. They went 14-0 in 
the regular season, won two playoff games, and then won the Super Bowl, a perfect 17-0 season. By the way, playing on the line, the line for the Miami Dolphins during that championship season was a guy by the name of Mike Colon. His last name is spelled K-O-L-E-N. He played his college ball at the University of Auburn, Auburn Tigers, for Coach Pat Dye, who was the coach of the Auburn Tigers at that time. When Mike Colon graduated, he went into the NFL. Preacher, he only spent eight years in the NFL, but he spent all eight years with the Miami Dolphins. When Mike Colon retired from his NFL career after eight years playing, he was invited by Pat Dye, the coach at Auburn, to come back and be an assistant coach specializing in recruiting student athletes to come play football at Auburn University. Wanting to do a good job, true story, preacher, wanting to do a good job, Mike Colon asked... Pat Dye, what kind of student athlete, specifically what kind of football player are you looking for for me to recruit? Pat Dye said this, well, Mike, you know that guy on the football field, when you hit him and you knock him down, he just stays on the turf? And Mike said, well, I hadn't played against too many like that, but I think another type. Pat Dye said, that's not what we want at Auburn. He said, but you know that guy on the football field, when you hit him and you knock him down, he gets up and you hit him the second time. And when you knock him down the second time, he stays on the turf. And again, Mike Colin said, well, you know, I hadn't played against too many like that, but I think I understand what you're saying. Well, Coach Dye said, that's not what we want at Auburn either, but... You know that guy that on the football field, you hit him, knock him down, he gets up, hit him again, knock him down, he gets up, hit him a third time, knock him down, he gets up. You keep hitting him and knock him down, he keeps getting back up. And at that point, Mike Colin said, that's the kind of guy you want us to recruit to play football at Auburn, right? Pat Dye said, no, not really. The guy we want you to recruit is the guy doing all the knocking down. Find him. And if you can locate him, recruit him to come play football at Auburn University. True story. Now stay with me. I know I'm being just a little funny here at the beginning. It's important as a division one college football coach to find the right kind of student athlete. Are you with me? What I'm trying to tell you is coach Pat Dye was on a manhunt for a certain kind of student athlete. I'm not saying that's not important. It is. Now let me get very serious. In 1996, the United States of America was the host country. Atlanta, Georgia was the host city for the summer Olympics in 1996. By the way, any of you go to it? Any of you watch it like I did? If you'll remember about three days, four days before the, the Summer Olympics that year actually started, there was a bomb planted and detonated in Olympic Park. By the way, there was a movie telling this whole story. I've seen it. It's quite accurate the way they portray everything that happened. But anyway, there was a bomb planted and detonated in Olympic Park, also called Centennial Park. It's the same location. And that bomb ended up injuring four or five people and actually claiming one life. Initially, the man they thought that had planted and detonated the device was a security guard for the Olympics that summer by the name of William Jewell. If you've seen the movie, you understand the FBI tried to pin that thing on him to get a conviction, but he had nothing to do with planning or detonating the device. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He happened to be caught on a security camera in close proximity to where the bomb detonated, but he had nothing whatsoever with, to do with planning or detonating the device. He was ultimately acquitted of any culpability whatsoever, totally acquitted. But folks, listen to me, though he was acquitted, do you know he lived the rest of his life under the shadow of that initial false accusation? Is everybody listening to me? Now, this is not the sermon tonight, but it does bear being noted. Words are indeed like water poured out on the ground. Once they're out, they're virtually impossible to retrieve. So you need to be careful what you say about people. You need to be very careful, and so do I. No, William Jewell had nothing to do with planning or detonating that device. The guy that had done both 
was a man by the name of Eric Rudolph. Do you remember that name? By the way, after detonating that device in Olympic Park, he fled to the western mountains of this state. And he hung out in the western part of this state in the rugged terrain of North Carolina. And by the way, I'm just going to say it. You don't hang out there and survive as long as he did and evade the authorities as long as he did without having a little help from the locals. If you understand what I'm saying, somebody's getting information to him. Somebody's getting food and provisions to him. The FBI searched for Eric Rudolph for 10 years, 10 long years. 10 long years during which time Eric Rudolph became the most wanted man on the FBI's most wanted list. And preacher, you're hearing me correctly. They spent four million, with an M, million dollars trying to track down one guy. Does anybody remember how they captured him? Yeah, an off-duty rookie police officer was making a phone call from an outside phone booth at a 7-Eleven style store. Or excuse me, uh, Eric Rudolph was making the phone call and an off-duty rookie police officer drove by and thought, that looks like, that guy at the phone looks like the guy that's on the FBI's most wanted list. He called for backup. Backup came. They circled Eric Rudolph. I guess after being on the lam for 10 years, he he didn't want to resist because he didn't resist at all. They put his arms behind his back, handcuffed him, put him in a squad car, took him down and booked him for the injury of four or five and the murder of one person with the detonation of that bomb in Olympic Park. And the longest most expensive manhunt in U.S. history came to an end. You say, preacher, why are you telling us that? Folk, as important as it is for a Division I football coach to find the right kind of athlete, as infinitely more important as it is for the FBI to locate the most wanted man in America, as important as all that is, I want you to understand there's a greater, more significant manhunt going on tonight. And it's one being conducted by the God of heaven. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? I want you to look at verse 30 of Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22, let your eyes rest on verse 30. God's speaking and he says this, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Look at this last phrase. It's a tragic one, but I found, would you say the last word out loud? I found what? None. It literally in Hebrew, and I'm not trying to impress you, but words do mean things. In Hebrew, the word none means I found not one single solitary individual. Is everybody with me? God's on a manhunt. Now, ladies, I'm thankful you're here tonight. I said it last night and it's abundantly true. It's more true every service I ever preach in. The fact of the matter is there's no service that has ladies in it that wouldn't be made better if there were more ladies in the service. Are you listening to me? I'm thankful for godly women. Are you with me? Ladies, I'm thankful you're here tonight. You can listen in. The message is going to very much apply to you, but I'm telling you right out of the chute, my target audience tonight is not the ladies. Men, the target audience tonight is us. God's looking for men. Now I want to show you three simple things tonight. We're going to be done and I'm going to head back to my ranch and you're going to head to yours. All right. I want you to look, if you would, please, at Ezekiel 22, 30, three simple things. And I would implore you to do this. Just jot these down maybe in the margin of your Bible. Go back and study it for yourself. Be Berean in your mentality. The Bible says the Berean believers were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they did two things. Number one, they received the word with all readiness of mind. I want you to receive the word tonight. Can you hear an amen? And then I want you to do what they did. The Bible says they went one step further, they searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not the things Paul said 
were so. I don't mind you checking me out. I encourage you to. Everybody that preaches, check them out according to the Bible. Can I hear an amen? God's manhunt. I want you to see first tonight, I want you to see the setting the setting. You say, Brother Dave, what do you mean by that? I want you to see the setting of verse number 30. By the way, no verse of scripture can be taken out of its context and us fully understand what it's talking about. I mean, we quote John three sixteen for God so loved the world. It's a, it's a powerful verse, but you know, it's in a context of surrounding verses, surrounding right. chapters. And when you understand the setting of a verse, it's very significant preacher to understanding the meaning of the verse. This verse is not an island in and of itself. It's in a chapter where God is trying to communicate something. The setting of this verse. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? Back up if you would, please. I'm just going to take a second to do this. But don't you look at Ezekiel 22, verse one. God is speaking here. In fact, uh, he's speaking through his prophet Ezekiel and Ezekiel inspired by the Holy Spirit of God writes these words. Look what he says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, this is Ezekiel talking. Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge? Wilt thou judge the, would you say the next two words outside the what kind of city? bloody city. Folk, look up at me for a minute. What's being stated here by God through his prophet Ezekiel is this. You're in a culture full of bloodshed. By the way, that sounds just like America, doesn't it? Folk, you cannot. By the way, a pastor said to me one time, it broke my heart. Stay off the abortion issue, preacher. That's political. Can I tell you tonight? Abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is a moral issue. It is a Bible issue. The Bible says God judges nations for the shedding of innocent blood. And you don't get blood more innocent than that which has never had the privilege to breathe air the first time. You see, Jerusalem and Israel was just like America at this stage in Ezekiel's ministry, full of bloodshed, but it didn't stop there. Look again, if you would, please, at verse number two. Then say thou, thus saith the Lord, the city sheddeth blood in the midst of it. Bloodshed rampant. Look over, if you would, please, at verse 11. It went further. Look at verse 11. And one, forgive me, one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife, And another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. Folk, all of this is the Holy Spirit's very discreet way of saying this. Not only was there bloodshed rampant in Ezekiel's day, there was blatant immorality rampant in Ezekiel. Sounds just like America, doesn't it? Folk, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. Even after what happened on Saturday, it was an amazing thing. We were there. I watched brethren of 50,000, 100,000 people on their knees and on their faces crying out to God for forgiveness and repenting of their sin and the sins of our nation. There's hope for America when God sees that. But folk, we're full of immorality. Tragically, the church of Jesus Christ has more than its share of it. Tragically, the church of Jesus Christ has more than its share of it. Look at verse 13 of Ezekiel 22. Verse 12, excuse me. In thee they have taken gifts. In addition to the bloodshed and the immorality, there was extortion. In thee they have taken gifts to shed blood. Thou hast taken usury and increased and hast greedily gained of thy neighbor by extortion and hast forgotten me, saith the Lord God. Boy, that's everybody, preacher, everybody on the, sounds just like the United States. Everybody's on the take. I mean, everybody's up for sale. I work in a city called Washington, D.C., where politicians are up for sale. Just give me enough money. Do this for me and I'll sell my core. I'll sell my soul. 
Sounds just like America, doesn't it? You say, well, preacher, surely, surely in the midst of all that wickedness, somebody would stand up and speak truth. Well, you would hope so. Well, Brother Dave, what about the, what about the uh, priests in Ezekiel's day? Surely there were some of them speaking truth. Well, you would hope. However, once you look at verse 25, Ezekiel 22, 25, look at this, the prophets. There's a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a ra- ra- roaring lion ravening the prey. They, the prophets, have devoured souls. They have taken the treasury and precious things and have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Folks, it's God's way of saying this. In the midst of all the wickedness, when somebody, especially the prophets, should be standing up and speaking truth, the prophets are complicit in the evil. Well, what about the priests? Look at verse 26. Surely they're speaking truth, you'd hope. Look at verse 26. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Folks, look at me for a minute. If you're looking for help in Ezekiel's day from the prophets to the priests, good luck. Well, what about the politicians in Ezekiel's day? Can I (laughs) LOL laugh out loud? Look at verse 27. Her princes, by the way, the word princes is a word that would mean the equivalent today her politicians, her governmental leaders, in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood, to destroy souls, to get, look at this, nothing changes, does it? To get dishonest gain. Sounds like what they're doing today, doesn't it? By the way, folk, I'm sorry, but I hope it comes up tomorrow. I'm not being political preacher, I've had enough. I want this to come up tomorrow night at the debate, and that is how in the world can Hunter Biden, who has no experience whatsoever in the oil or energy industry, be making millions of dollars from his daddy's position as the vice president of the United States? That is illegal. Can I hear an amen? Right. And the media won't touch it. Right. Yep. I have an inkling of an idea. Our president's gonna bring it up tomorrow night. And he should. Can I hear an amen? Amen. What we're talking about. By the way, you say, preacher, I don't don't like you talking that way. Folk, look, I love you. And I'll just tell you right now, if you're offended by what I just said, if you'll come to me after the service and apologize for feeling that way, I'll forgive you. I promise I really will. I really will. Folk, I love you. I love, I wish I had an arm preacher this long enough on my right side and long enough on the left side to go down the outside and meet in the back and give this church a group bear hug. You don't know how much I love you. This is a rare congregation. God's blessed you. He's been so good to you. And I believe it's because you got a preacher who'll stand up and tell you the truth. He loves God and he loves the word and he loves you. Man, are you blessed. Wow. What I'm trying to say is this, politicians, worthless in Ezekiel's day. You say, well, Brother Dave, what about the common people? Surely there was a common man or woman somewhere who'd speak the truth. Well, you would sure hope so. However, once you look at verse number 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Now, folk, look at me. Here's what Ezekiel is trying to say. Whether it's prophets, priests, politicians, people, all of them are through and through corrupt. Now, if you want to get the setting of verse 30, look at it now. Where God says, and I sought for a man. What are the next two words? Among them. Who's the them? The corrupt prophets. The godless priests, pastor. The corrupt politicians, the on the take common people. 
God's looking from those four groups for just one man. Yes, sir. And he can't find one. Amen. That's the setting of verse 30. Now I want you to see a second thing. Not only the setting, number two, the search. The search. You say, preacher, what does that mean? I want you to see what it is God is searching for in the man that he's looking for. Look at verse 30 again. Here it comes. And I saw for a man among them that should do two things. Here it is. Number one, make up the hedge. Look up at me for just a minute. I'm going to confess my own stupidity, okay? <laughs> hedge. Any of you growing up like I did in a pastor's home, hear your daddy or your mom or maybe your pastor pray, God, I pray a hedge of protection around the Smiths as they travel on vacation. Yeah. That's my own stupidity, Brother Steve. I used to hear my dad pray that way. And I'd think, Dad, why are you praying shrubbery around the Smiths? <laughs> don't you know the devil can step through the shrubbery and get them? Why don't you pray a steel or concrete wall? A hedge... Well, obviously the word hedge here and the way my dad was using it in his prayer doesn't mean vegetation, right? Everybody with me? Literally the word hedge means I'm looking for a man who'll make up a wall. Let me just ask, have any of you men in here ever built a wall? <laughs> Bless your heart. I respect you guys more than ever before. I've never built one, but I tried to paint one. We have a fence, a wall around a portion of our property, used to, it's now down. And my wife said about, about, I don't know what, eight, nine, 10 years ago, she said, honey, I don't think that fence has been painted since the day we moved in. And she said, I think it'd be good to paint, you know, this week. And I said, okay. And so I went and got me some five gallon buckets and you know, that paint, you know, <laughs> the fence hadn't been painted and I put a coat on and you know what it did? That fence mocked me all day long. <laughs> minute I got some paint on, it just sucked it right in and went, nah, 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 nah. try that again. Put a second car, sucked it right in like you hadn't even touched it. I don't mean building the fence, just trying to paint it. Preacher, it was grueling. It was exhausting. Just trying to paint a wall, much less build one. What I'm trying to help you understand is erecting a wall, building a wall is selfless work. Can I hear an amen? It's tiring work. What God is looking for in the man he's searching for He's somebody who will make their life not about them. Wall builders don't build just for them. They build walls to protect others. Are you with me? We are living, preacher, in a culture that it's all about me. It's about my comfort and my agenda and my desires. Folk, it's not about any of those things. It ought to be about him. I'm not here to make me happy. I'm here to please the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who saved my soul. God's looking for selfless people. But look at the next phrase, because this is where it gets real interesting. God says, and I saw for a man among them that should make up the hedge, watch this, and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? Now, folk, I'm going to try to get through this. If I get teared up, I apologize. Preacher, a couple of years back, uh, many, well, in fact, it's been probably 15, 18 years ago, we were in Hope Baptist Church in Hanover, Pennsylvania. The pastor there said to me early on on Saturday after we arrived, he said, Preacher, I don't know if you know this, but you're 30 miles away from Gettysburg, the famous Gettysburg battlefield. By the way, I am a student of Civil War history, and I know that Gettysburg, more people died at Gettysburg in three days than have died in the entire war on terror put together. 
three days. So much blood from men from north and south seeped into the ground from the horrific nature of the Gettysburg battle for three days that when it rained the first time, they said all of the rivers ran red, preacher, from the blood of men on both sides. Folk, I don't know, and I'm, this is not where I'm going, but I, I, I don't know if we face potentially another civil war again, how many men will stand up and defend the right. Amen. He said, you're 30 miles away. He said, you may want to take your kids on the little field trip and go over, which we did on Tuesday of that week. We went to the Tourist Information Bureau in those days. They gave, this tells you how long ago it was. They gave you a cassette tape. How many of you know what a cassette tape is? Oh, yeah. The young people are going, a ca, a ca, a, a ca what? <laughs> you guys sell CDs. You know, I was in, I was in West Virginia. I love West Virginia. I do. I love it. Everybody makes jokes about West I'm not making, I'm just telling you what happened. If you could flatten the state of West Virginia out, it'd be bigger than Texas. I mean, it, I mean, it's just with the mountains. It's a great, it's a beautiful state. I love it. But a lady asked me, she said, you don't have any of your family's music on eight track, do you? <laughs> I said, ma'am, we've never had any of our family's music on 8-track. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to explain not long ago what a, what, a, what a long play, LP album. How many of you are older, date yourself, you know what an LP is? You know, I was trying to explain to a group of teenagers what an LP was, and they're looking at me like, what? And I said, you know, it's like a, I said, well, it's like a giant CD. That's all I could think that's of. Right. Yeah, right. A long play record album, all right? Yes. Well, they gave us a cassette. The Gettysburg Battlefield, they said, insert it into the tape deck of your vehicle, drive into the battlefield, follow the instructions, which we did. By the way, any of y'all ever done this? It's, it's awesome to do. We're driving into the battlefield. I don't know if they've changed it, but I know when we went, they say, now pull up here, stop, put your car in park, leave your engine running, tape deck playing, look to left or right, and they describe, you know, something about the battle. Well, there was one spot as we're going through the battlefield, the guy that was narrating on the tape said, now put your car in park here, which I did, leave the tape deck running, engine running, tape deck playing. Look to your left and you're gonna look down a ravine. And sure enough, you could see down in the ravine as he began to describe it, what was left of a very hastily built and obviously very crudely built rock wall. About, about the height of the backs of these chairs. And the narrator said, during the height of the three days of hell on earth that was Gettysburg, the Army of Northern Virginia, the, the Army of the South, realized that mountain. And he said, if you look through the windshield of your vehicle, and sure enough, I looked through the truck windshield, we could see it. He said, that little rise over there was the place they were trying to take. Because if you've got the high grounds, you've got distinct advantage, right? He said, so here's what's going on. They're loading their muskets up that fires one volley at a time. Isn't that something? Put in the round, wadding. Fire, poof, peel to the back, next group come up, load up, fire, peel to the back, next group. And he said they were making an advance until the Army of the North brought in the heavy artillery. They started firing cannonball rounds down. And he said it would take them a while to dial in distance and account for wind or whatever. It took three, four, five shots. But on the fifth or sixth shot, he said they'd dial that baby in. And he said when the first cannonball round hit that wall that these men were hiding and ducking behind, using it for cover. He said when a cannonball round hit it, it would send rock in hundreds if not thousands of pieces. His words, not mine, Pastor. He said, now there's a gaping hole in the wall, a gap. He said, do you know what the men from the Army of the South did? The first man pitched his musket 
and stepped up into the hole and filled the hole with his torso, his body. And the narrator said it's called standing in the gap. He said it's now his body and the appendages of his body, his ears, his fingers, getting shot off by the musket rounds and heaven forbid if he got hit with a cannonball round. Now it's no longer rocks but flesh, forgive me, going in hundreds of directions. And he said when the first man would slump over in death, he said that was the signal for his buddy behind him to pull that corpse out of the hole in the wall and now it's his turn to stand in the gap and to absorb and protect with his body. And the narrator said all day long, men from the Army of the South stood in the gap for what they believed. Wow. Wow. That's exactly what this is talking about. God's looking for men who'll be selfless enough to erect a wall around their family around their church. Hey, look, preacher, I never believed. I never believed that a thing called critical race theory would be taught in Baptist churches in the United States of America. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? Anybody ever heard the term critical race theory? It basically says this, that America, really, history started in 1619. And America was, by the way, there's a thing that they're trying to get into public schools called the 1619 Project. Folk, it is out of the pit of hell itself. What they're trying to say is America fought a war not for independence, not for religious liberty, but to maintain the institution of slavery. Preacher, that's not true. That is not true. God's looking for men who'll build walls of protection around the church, around the, around the country. And then God's looking for not just selfless men who'll build a wall but sacrificial men who'll be willing to die on certain battlefields. Guys, when you sung that song about there still being something worth fighting and dying for in America, my heart was doing cartwheels inside of me. That's the message that needs to be heard on the 4th of July all over America, especially in Vail, North Carolina. There is something worth fighting and dying for in this country. Do you know what I believe? I believe the Bible, the Word of God, is worth fighting and dying for. I believe the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, all these things that we call the fundamentals of the faith, they're non-negotiables. They're worth fighting and dying for. Now, folks, please, please, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but I need to say it. I am wearing a tie tonight, just loosened up a little bit. I apologize. But I want to tell you something. If push comes to shove and somebody puts a gun in my face and tells me, you know, if you continue wearing a tie, you're going to die, I'm going to get rid of my tie. Because that ain't worth fighting and dying for. Are you with me? Now, if they put a gun in my face and say, deny Jesus, I'll die on that battlefield. But I'm not going to die for a piece of fabric. Are you listening to me? Preacher, I don't know if you heard about the guy, you know, showed up at a church here in North Carolina on a Sunday morning and he didn't have a tie on, had a sport coat, no tie. And the guys at the front door said, hey, where's your tie? And he said, well, I didn't wear one today. I usually do, but I didn't today. Can I worship with you? And they said, well, you know, we kind of like people that come to our church to wear wear a tie. And um, he said, well, I didn't wear one. They said, well, you know, everybody does this. Every man does this. They'll take a tie off at the end of their work day. If they're a businessman, throw it on the back seat. I bet you've thrown a tie on the back seat. If you'd go to your car and look and see if you've got a tie. And he thought, you know, some church won't let me in a worship unless I got a tie. So he walked to his car and he opened his car up, looked on the back seat, there was no tie. He thought, man, I... So he goes around to his trunk and he opens the trunk and there was no tie there, but he did see a set of jumper cables. <laughs> so preacher, he took the jumper cables out, looped around his neck, looped them through one time, pulled it, you know, terminals hanging here, walked back up on the front porch of the church. One of those ushers said, all right, we'll let you in, but you better not try to start something. <laughs> That's terrible, isn't it? Hey, folk, Listen. 
I ain't going to fight and die over a tie. I wear one every day of my life. But you know what? That's not worth fighting and dying for. King Jesus is. The word of God is. And God's looking for men. And by the way, and ladies and young people who'll be selfless enough to build walls around what's important and sacrificial enough to die on a battlefield that's worth dying on. Preacher, I believe America's worth fighting and dying for. By the way, that flag right there, in 1976, a choir came to my dad's church and they did a wonderful musical to commemorate America's 200th birthday. 1776 to 1976, preacher. And a guy recited a poem. I'm sorry, I've got a quirk of my brain. You say it's a blessing. No, it's not. It's a curse. I got a lot of stuff up here I'd like to forget. But that guy quoted this poem and I've never forgotten it. Proudly she waves, O glory, over the land of the free. Promise of hope and freedom, symbol of liberty. Red, white, and blue are her colors, colors both brilliant and clear. Colors with far deeper meaning than that at first may appear. Red is for blood of patriots who've died to free us. White is for justice and government of law. Blue is for honor and faith in all we do. This is my flag. This is old glory. The red, white, and blue. Can we give old glory a round of applause? Preacher, to the day I die, I'll never understand how a man who makes $19 million a year playing a game, playing a game, didn't have enough respect for the flag of the nation that affords him the opportunity to make that kind of money playing a game to put his hand over his heart when the flag passes and when the national anthem is sung. I don't understand it. Wow, boy, I got that off my chest. Preacher, I feel better. <laughs> Evidently, you do too. <laughs> Some things are worth fighting and dying for. I think America is one of them. Yes. The setting, the search, number three, and I'm done. I want you to see the sigh. S-I-G-H. It's like God sighs at the end of verse 30. Look at it. And I saw for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Here comes the sigh. But I found, what's the last word again? Not one single solitary individual. I found none. God's on a manhunt, folks. And I think God's manhunt's gonna net a few fellas tonight. And I trust a few ladies tonight. And I trust some young people tonight. Now stay with me and I'm done. The year would have been 1556. Three men in 1556 were trying to evade capture in the mother country of England, being pursued by a queen named Mary. But she had a very descriptive adjective in front of her name. Anybody know what that adjective was? Bloody Bloody Mary. And Brother Jones, she earned that title well. I have been to Tower Hill inside, inside the castle. I've been to the spot where Bloody Mary murdered a thousand men, cut their heads off, 300 of whom were preachers of the gospel. She earned her title, Bloody Mary, well. Bloody Mary. 
By the way, folks, England's long and story history has been a pendulum swing. Sometimes England was a Protestant country, sometimes a Catholic country. Sometimes a Protestant country, depending on who was king or queen. Later again, Catholic country. I want you to understand, Bloody Mary was a Catholic. And she searched for Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer because she wanted them to swear allegiance to Roman Catholicism. And she believed they would not do so. In 1556, two of what's called the Oxford Three. Oxford martyrs, they're also called, because they were brought to Oxford, England. And by the way, preacher, several years ago, I stood at the very spot where what I'm about to describe happened. You talk about being in the moment and realizing what these men, it's one thing to read about it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's something else to stand there where it happened. Yeah, Bloody Mary brought Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer to Oxford, England, and they brought them down a long corridor. The way I understand from reading it, it may have been about like this aisle. And up front was a table, a tribunal table. And behind the tribunal table were two men. And they'd already prepared two pieces of parchment with a recantation statement already on it. The recantation statement said, I, and there's a place for them to sign their name, recant, deny my faith in Jesus Christ. I swear allegiance, in essence, to the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic doctrine. And those two men were brought to that table. And the men behind the tribunal table said, sign it, you're free to go. Refuse to sign and you will die. Do you know both men refused to sign? So they were carried where our tour guide, an unsaved tour guide, by the way, not trying to make any spiritual point, but he took us to the spot in the middle of the road. It's now been paved over, but now they, they've stopped automobile traffic so they could peel up, peel up the pavement because there's a cross made out of cobblestone at the very spot where they drove a stake here and a stake here and they tied to, to Hugh Latimer to this side and they tied Nicholas Ridley to this side, brought in brush and put it around both men's feet returned after lighting torches, set the brush on fire and then stood back. Our tour guide said, all of Oxford, children included, think of that. His words, not mine, like spectators watching a sporting event. All of Oxford gathered to watch you, Latimer and Nicholas Ridley burn to death for their faith. As the flames came up their bodies, Hugh Latimer turned to his friend, Nicholas Ridley, and above the roar of the ever-increasing flame, he yelled these words, Take heart, Master Ridley! Play the man! We shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by the grace of God shall never be put out. Mm. And by the way, they did light a candle for the gospel and for freedom. Now folks, stay with me, please. You've got to hear this. That was 1556. Do you know the first permanent English settlement left England and came to America in 1607? 51 years later, preacher. 51 years later, the first permanent English settlement came to America. 51 years after those men died for their faith. Do you know what happened after they died for their faith? England swung away from Catholicism back to Protestantism. Do you know we were not colonized as a Catholic colony. We were colonized as non-Catholic. Preacher, we struggled to get our independence even at that. If we'd been colonized as Catholics, I don't think we'd have ever gotten it. 
So what I'm trying to tell you is Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, when they died in 1556, they did something that we're reaping the benefit of today. Are you listening to me? Wow. Watching those two men, their friends die that day in 1556, in the crowd with a hood over his head so he would not be recognized, was the third of the Oxford Three or the Oxford Martyrs, Thomas Cranmer. And when he watched both men Burned to death and he heard Latimer's comment to Ridley, take heart, play the man. Thomas Cranmer ducked out of the crowd and successfully evaded capture for about nine more months. Finally, Bloody Mary caught him and he was brought to Oxford, England. Down the long corridor to the table at the front of the room where the tribunal agents sat A parchment's already been prepared, a recantation statement for him. There's a inkwell here and a quill pen. And the two men said, sign, recant of your faith in Jesus Christ and you're free to go. Refuse to do so and you will die. Now folks, I'm not throwing a stone or multiple stones at Thomas Kremer because I've never been where he was. Neither have you. Yet. But we may be. If certain things don't happen, folk, I'm telling you, I'm privy to information I can't share with you fully. But if certain things don't happen on November 3rd, and don't think I'm trying to scare you, what I'm saying, I wish I could scare you. If certain things don't happen on November 3rd, folk, we're starting a process where what we're doing tonight will be no more. And we've seen shades of it. Trying to shut churches down where everything else is allowed to be open. This has all been, the virus is real, but the response has been egregious. It's been a test. How far will the American people let us push them? How much restrictions will they let us place on them? Sign this recantation statement. Deny your faith in Christ. Swear allegiance to Catholicism. You're free to go. Again, I'm not throwing rocks at Cranmer because I've never been there, nor have you. But in a moment of weakness, he took the quill pen, dipped it in the equal, signed his name on the recantation line and denied his faith in Jesus Christ. Gloatingly, according to our tour guide there in Oxford, the day we took the tour, gloatingly, he said they folded their arms and they looked at Thomas Cranmer and they said, you're free to go. You're free to go. And Thomas Cranmer turned and walked down the center aisle of that tribunal hall, free in body, but anything but free in spirit because like Peter of old, he just denied his Lord. Our tour guide asked a question of our group that day. He said, do any of you know how long Cranmer lived with his denial? And I said, yes, sir, I think I do. He said, how long? I said, if I remember my history correctly, it was three days. He said, bingo. He said, after three days of living with his denial, he couldn't take it anymore. So he burst through the back doors of the tribunal hall, came back down the aisle. He's raving, our tour guide said, like a maniac, shouting, I take it back, I take it back, I take it back. And they said, you take what back? He said, what I did here three days ago, denying Jesus. I I don't deny him, I take it back. They said, keep talking like that. We'll carry you out and burn you now. Our tour guide said, Cranmer, defiant in the spirit said, don't threaten me with seeing my savior. Carry me, carry me. And they did to the spot where the cross is made out of cobblestone. And they drove a stake, 
tied his torso to it, left his hands and arms free, brought in the brush, exited again, brought in a lit torch, set it on fire. And all Oxford, children included, gathered to watch Thomas Cranmer burn to death. By the way, there's a lithograph drawing someone drew who stood there and watched that. You can find it online. Preachers, we're worth looking at. As the flames come up Thomas Cranmer's body, eyewitnesses said he lifted his right hand, the one that had signed the recantation statement, and he just turned it and looked at it. And then above the roar of the flame, he yelled where everybody in town could hear him. This hand that denied my Lord, it's going to be the first to burn. And he deliberately held his hand in the flames until thumb, finger, 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 finger burned and dropped off. And then eyewitnesses said he raised a scorched nub on this side and still five fingers on this side, tipped his head backward. And our tour guide said he sang praises to his savior till the flames consumed his body. Preacher, that's a man of God. And in 1556 and 1557, the early part of it, God's manhunt netted three guys. Wow. Now, folks, I want to ask you a question as I close. What if armed individuals came through those doors tonight? I know what some of you are thinking, preacher, they'd get just two steps in and all the people carrying weapons in here would take them down. That's probably true. <laughs> Thank God for you. By the way, my wife, when she did her concealed carry class, the guy taught the class said, your wife and your son, sir, could both work for the police department. They're so accurate. You, not so much, but the two of them. <laughs> it's true. So if somebody does something to me and I have to draw, you're going to get away. If my wife is in the house, you ain't getting away. She'll take you down. <laughs> what if armed individuals came through the back door? Walked right up here to the front row, and um, forgive me for pointing, but they put a loaded automatic weapon in your face and they ask you this question. Do you really believe? Do you really believe Jesus is your savior? Because if you say yes, you're going to die for that belief. What would you say? I know what I want to say. He's my savior. But see, Peter said the same thing, didn't he? Though all forsake it, not me, not me. And Jesus said, let me tell you something. Before the cock crows three times, you will have denied me the same number of times. Yeah, I know what I want to say. But I've never been there. I know what you're thinking. Some of you preach that's a long way off. It's a long way off in America. That'll never happen in my lifetime. Oh, you're so sadly mistaken. Focus already happened in America. It's already happened. Do you remember? What was it, 95, 96, Columbine High School, where Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold walked in? They walked in the high school into the library looking for two groups of students, Christians and athletes, and they found some of both. And those two boys with loaded weapons walked up to a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed young lady by the name of Rachel Scott. Her daddy, by the way, has testified before Congress multiple times telling what happened to his daughter. 
every time members of Congress have wept. Pardon me for pointing, ma'am. Forgive me. But they pointed a gun in Rachel Scott's face and they asked her what came to be known among the Columbine students is merely the question. The question. Here's the question. Do you really believe Jesus is your Savior? Because if you say yes, you're dying today. And according to eyewitnesses in the room, Rachel Scott said, Jesus is my Lord and said, bang. And then they walked across and pardon me for pointing at you, brother Steve. They found an African-American young man, star football player at Columbine High School who was also a Christian. He's just watched his classmate die. And they put the same smoking gun in his face and they asked him the question, do you believe? And here's the way he answered it. Eyewitnesses said he stiffened his spine and said, I do not deny my savior, Jesus. I do not, bang. It's already happened in America. What's happening to John MacArthur in California? Jack Treber, North Valley Baptist? What's happening to those churches out there? Is all a test of how far they can be pushed. Folks, the day's coming when we're going to face the question. And folk, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. But if you as a pastor, and thank God your preacher is the antithesis of this. He's the opposite. If your pastor says, I'm going to keep my church closed down. I don't care how long the government tells me to do it. Then he won't stand when the question's asked. Because right. Right. this is pushback time. Amen. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to answer just a couple of questions transparently and honestly. The first question is simply this. Do you really know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And if you were posed the question, do you really believe? You would say yes, because you do really believe. You know Jesus is your Savior. You know He's forgiven your sin. You know if you were to die in an automobile accident on your way home tonight. I pray that never happens. But if that were to happen, you know you're going to heaven. So you can say, yes, Dave, I know I'm saved. And I would say yes to the question because Jesus is my savior. I know I've been born again. If you know you've been born again, would you lift your hand, hold it as high as you can? I know I've been saved. I don't have a doubt about it. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Second question. Is there anyone in the room tonight? Anyone at all? Could be several, perhaps. You don't know. You really are not sure that Jesus is your Savior. And the thought of facing a loaded weapon, staring down the barrel of that weapon scares you silly. Friend, let me ask you something. If you're not sure Jesus is your Savior, this is not a time to delay that decision. No, the Bible says now is the accepted time. Today's the day of salvation. If you're hearing God's voice, don't you harden your heart. So what I'm wondering tonight, is there anyone in the room that would be honest enough, courageous enough to say, preacher, here's the deal. I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I'm not 100% certain that when I die, I'm going to heaven. 
I don't think I could ever say yes to the question that I know Jesus. By the way, friends, you won't. If you, Peter knew the Lord and still denied him, you'll never say yes to something you don't legitimately possess. Is there anyone in the room, preacher, pray for me. I don't know for sure that I'm saved, but I'd sure like to know that when I die, heaven's gonna be my home. If that's you, would you lift your hand long enough for me to see it? Thank you, God bless you. Are there any others? Preacher, pray for me. I'm just not sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. Anyone else at all? I'm looking all across the room. Father, I pray you'd speak to us at this moment. Father, I pray for those in the room that don't really know for sure they're going to heaven. Father, may they not put off to another time this decision. Father, may they not listen to the hissing, snarling voice of the wicked one who would tell them you've got plenty of time. Lord, we don't know that. So Father, may they heed your voice that says now is the time. Today's the day. And may they come to you and be saved before it's eternally too late. Now, friends, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I thank you for cooperating. Pastor, I'm gonna do this a little differently tonight. Would you mind, my dear Pastor Steve, would you mind stepping to the back of the auditorium right at the front of the double doors that exit this building into the foyer? Thank you so much. Now, friends, I want you just to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody. I wouldn't do that tonight. I've really never done that. But I do want to encourage. In fact, I want to beg of you. If you don't know for sure you're going to heaven when life's over for you down here, especially if you lifted your hand, could I encourage you to do something, sir, ma'am, young man, young lady? Right now, while no one's looking but just me, would you be willing, if you're not sure that heaven's going to be your eternal destiny, especially if you lifted your hand and let me pray for you, would you be willing to get up from where you're seated right now and just step to the back where pastor is? Let him put someone with you or he himself take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. Would you be willing to do that right now? God bless your heart. And friends, thank you for keeping your head bowed. Friend, what about you? What about you? What about you? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. God wants you to know. He wants you to be sure. This is not something to take a chance on. God wants you to know. One final question. Christian friends, please hear me. I'm wording it the way I'm going to word it deliberately. So hear me out. Our God is not asking us to die physically for him yet. All our God is asking us to do right now is live for him. Live for him. And some of us won't even do that with a vengeance. Tonight, I want to pose this question to God's people. How many of you would be willing to say, men, women, young people, God's manhunt, God's person hunts found me tonight. And Lord, I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed to tell you this. I'm going to live for you right now. I'm going to live for you right now with everything I've got. My all is on the altar tonight. I'm going to live for you. And Lord, if you call upon me to do so at a later date, to die for you, I want you to know, Lord, tonight it is my intent to do that as well. Live for you now, and if I have to, 
if that's your will for me at some later date to die for you, I want you to know I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, it's my intent to be willing to die for you later. Now think that through, folks. Think it through. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you stand to your feet? I'm going to pray. Our trio that blessed us tonight so much is going to sing for the invitation. And as they do, even now, you don't have to wait for them. If you'd be willing to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, at a later date, die for you. It's my intent to do that. I want to invite you to come around this altar, get on your knees before God or stand here if you can't physically kneel and tell God that. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, this can be the start of something in this church, this community, this end of the state, across the state and around the, the nation, Lord. If we'll just get serious, deadly serious with you. Bless, Father, may we respond as you would have us and we'll thank you and praise you. As the men sing, if you want to come join us, Lord, I'm going to live for you now and if I have to, it's my intent to die for you if that's your will. Let God know that. I'm going to tell you why this is important in just a second. Would you come and join us tonight? God bless you, friends. That's right. Would you join us tonight? God bless you, young man. to live for you. Now, if I have to, it's my intent to die for you. Later. I have seen ruined lives of millions bound by sin. I have seen those in the ghetto with a bottle in their hand Yet I know this could be me I could be in that same place But I'm washed and redeemed I thank God for grace my sin away if not for Calvary where would I be today I was blind now I see I thank God for grace friends just look up at me for a moment if you would as you're making your way back and there's no rush you take as long as you need around this altar if you'll remember in the book of Daniel Daniel at periodic times in his life faced some key challenges and by the way when you're back to your seat you may be seated eat the king's meat drink the king's wine 
Daniel 1.8 says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Not with a portion of the king's meat, the wine which he drank. I will not do that, said Daniel. By the way, that stood him in good stead at every crisis moment in his life. We'll never say yes in the crisis if we've not said yes before the crisis. Are you with me? These are decisions we make now before the crisis moment ever comes. And again, folk, I want you to pray like you've never prayed before. This is important. The next 36 days will tell a tale of the future of the United States of America from all kinds of perspectives. Religious liberty being the number one perspective. I don't know about you. I want to keep my liberty. I want to continue to preach and I want America to be the springboard from which the gospel will go around the globe. All of that, all of that hangs in the balance depending on what happens 36 days from now. And by the way, it's already started. Okay, people are already going to the polls and voting. Please don't think I'm trying to make this political. I'm not, folk. I'm just aware of what's going on. Hope you are or you will get yourself educated with respect to it. This is important. It's time for God's people to stand up courageously, lovingly, but courageously live for our Savior. If not now, when? God's looking for men and women, young people, on whom he can bestow his blessing and power. I don't know about you. I want to be one of those. Father, would you bless us tonight? And Father, I pray that we'd come back tomorrow night, Lord, as we have another service to go into your word, Lord, and gain and glean from your truth, that which we need for these days. And Lord, tomorrow night, Lord, I'm going to preach on monumental choices and moments of crisis. And Lord, we're certainly in a crisis time. But Lord, there's monumental choices we need to make in these moments of crisis. Father, I pray this house would be filled tomorrow night so that Lord, we might listen, learn, and then live that which we've listened to and that which we've learned about. And Father, we'll thank you for it. Help us to be faithful to you tonight. Take us to our home safely. Bring us back safely. Tomorrow night is my prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people who prayed with me said, Amen. 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 Preacher, you come right ahead.